beautifully, Megan and I are both just devotees of Octavia Butler. Parable of the Sower really is that kind of pilgrimage inward, and its protagonist, in many ways like Megan, in many ways like myself and so many of us in this time, we're driven out of what we know into all manner of desert, psychic, actual. It's not a place that you enter into willingly or you enter into the desert with the understanding, the sort of pact that you will be allowed to be absolved of all that you were. This desert, particularly the Las Vegas desert, is a place of hiding. It's an escape. It's a portal. It's a vortex. That was the mystical and magical Erica Vitalizar. Welcome to Black Mountain Radio, broadcast from the Mojave Desert. I'm Sara Ortiz. And I'm Scott Dickensheets. Hi, Scott. How are you doing? All in all, Sara, I'm doing very well. But is that the truth? It's most of the truth. Some of the truth. When Erica was here last week, I asked her to introduce herself to our listeners. So if you don't mind. I am a longtime resident of Las Vegas or the Las Vegas area. I've been a journalist for 35 years uh, at various weeklies, dailies, monthlies, and now I'm a freelance writer and editor. Yeah, you are. (laughs) And um, I love that when I asked you to help us guest edit some pieces for Black Mountain Radio, you said yes. (laughs) And I was just so happy to have you be a part of the team. Even one of the pieces that listeners are going to get to hear today was edited by you, which I'm really happy about. Oh, you know what we haven't talked about is the new little one in your family. I don't know that <laughs> listeners want to know, but I want to know. Yeah, a brand new granddaughter, five pounds, two ounces. Oh, my God. Grandchild number seven. A pandemic baby. Pandemic baby. And the center of the family for now. Oh, that sounds glorious, honestly. It is. Tell me about how long you've been here in Las Vegas. 51 long years, uh, maybe more depending on how you count 2020. Mm, I feel like being here for 51 years would definitely bring some lessons of sorts. And I'm thinking of the spirit of this episode, which we are theming around desert nature. And I'm curious to know what lessons the desert has taught you. I mean, one thing I've learned, definitely learned in the desert is the desert warps your perceptions. Things are not as near as they seem. That mountain that looks like a short hike away. Trust me, it's not. What looks like water, that's really a mirage. An expanse that looks empty is not empty. And on a related note, the desert teaches you that beauty is often entwined with danger, and that's a useful thing to keep in mind. And not to mention all the complicated adaptations that these plants and creatures have had to make to live in such a harsh environment. Oh, I really love that. Especially what looks empty isn't. That feels so true to my experience here. And I've only been here three years. And whenever I go on a hike around town or whenever I pass a clusters of sagebrush or pass a tall boulder, I'm so aware of the crevices and the rock formations. I'm also aware of the snake holes in the ground around <laughs> me as I'm going through these hikes. And I'm always thinking about those creatures that live beyond what is visible. And I'm also just reminded about how 
exposed and vulnerable we are out here in this desert. That really prompts me to go out and take a hike, doesn't it? <laughs> Joining us next to discuss their desert lessons are Megan Seelstra and Erica Vitalizar. Megan is the author of three essay collections, most recently, The Wrong Way to Save Your Life, a winner of the 2017 Book of the Year Award from the Chicago Review of Books. She's also a recent BMI Sharing Fellow. She spent about four months here in Las Vegas in the fall of 2020. She's talking to Erica Vitalizar, a writer and professor of creative writing at the College of Southern Nevada, where she teaches marginalized voices in dystopian literature. Erica is the editor of a McSweeney series revisiting classic Black literary works titled Of the Diaspora. Listeners might catch our host's name in this next segment. That's because Erica and Megan met at a small, socially distanced gathering in Sada's backyard. That's so true. It happened. Guilty, but also not guilty because we were absolutely careful and we were outside. And I hate that these things now have to come with those kinds of disclaimers. (laughs) But we were just eager to see people and to connect. Scott, do you remember not seeing people? I do. It's overrated. (laughs) Here's Megan. I hadn't stepped into Las Vegas thinking desert. I hadn't stepped into it thinking healing or change or perspective. I hadn't stepped into it really thinking at all. I I mean, I was trying to keep me and my little boy safe. And in another life, I might have arrived in this lovely, fabulous apartment in Las Vegas with this lovely new single life and stepped out into this city with its lights and its neon and its flashing and its beauty and its exciting people and its dancing and its color and its alcohol and all of this excitement. What I needed was the desert. I'm Megan Steelstra. I'm a writer and educator from Chicago, and I was a 2020 Shearing Fellow in Creative Nonfiction with the Black Mountain Institute in Las Vegas. And everything I currently own fits in the back of my car. I'm Erica Vital-Lazar. I am a professor of creative writing and marginal voices in dystopian literature at the College of Southern Nevada. I'm a mom. I'm a writer. I'm a lover of all beings. I'm a Virgo. I've been here two decades now. My sons were born here in this place remarkably. I'm a Southern girl. I never imagined such. So every day I wake up here, it feels unfamiliar in some ways. There's a peculiar kind of white noise here, I find, and that may be from the lack of a nearness to water, a constancy of water that pulls at the body. The desert doesn't pull at the body, it reflects back. You're always seeing yourself here. What were you always? I had just arrived in Las Vegas. This was August. August. We left. We left Michigan. Drove across the country. A, a friend of mine named Scott did the drive with me. It was my first time ever in the desert. I'd never been under this kind of sky before, and it had been quite a year. 
I'm from Chicago, but I had spent the past six months living with my young son in my mother's basement in rural Michigan. She needed a little bit of backup during the pandemic. And truthfully, I did too. My my husband had recently left me and I was still reeling a, a little bit from the heartbreak and then the, the world and, and uh, those two things were kind of colliding in my body in all sorts of really fascinating ways. And so, so to go from a basement immediately to the sky here, to a place where the sun was out, literally and metaphorically, felt really huge and profound. Well, it was dusk. It was near nightfall and a very warm balmy summer quarantine was when it felt really real. The fact that we'd been isolated through the spring. Now we're going into deep summer towards fall. And it felt like a blessing. That felt like a desert, right? Quarantine is the desert. We're separated from that sort of nourishment that daily watering of each other's company. But the energy you find that leaps from body to body to go without that, I think is a particular kind of poisoning. It is a drying out. So the fact that Sada invited us over with um, the new fellows around her pool, right? So there's water. There's a thing you've been without, and we all just dipped our feet in the pool. And it felt freeing, um, though we had been meeting for the first time. I believe our natural inclination would have been to just grab each other. <laughs> there were just six people there, and Erica was one of them. Maybe eight months at that point, I'd just been with my mother and with my young son. And to sit and and have the, the first person I was given be her was a, a real gift. You know, like, I think we have those moments where we know somebody up there is looking out for us. And, and that was certainly one of those moments for me. I love the way Megan tells that story. And particularly when Megan and I were sitting six feet apart, their feet in the water, there's a current that flows through. And we were talking about the very real very tender parts of our lives, even though we had just met. And one of those tender parts was what Megan was going through. A newness, you know, separation, divorce. And it's a very real and very heavy thing. I also wanted to congratulate her at the time <laughs> because, I don't know, I was thinking about those wonderful 40s films when you have the gay divorcee who comes out to the desert, you know, <laughs> with her fabulous luggage, you know, leather-bound luggage and its pillbox hat and gloves, but she's coming to get rid of, to shake off what had been keeping her confined and it may not have been a freedom that she wanted it may have been forced upon her or just suddenly she's ejected from the space where she once was but las vegas seems to be that spot where if you didn't know that you were about to be ejected out of one cocoon into this sort of unwanted freedom, 
by the time you cross the state line and your feet are dangling in somebody's pool and you've got strangers who feel like friends and you're drinking nice wine, you know that this place has been waiting for you all along. I, I did not want to speak over all the real pain that she had yet to experience, but I did want to tell her that there was blooming on the other side, and what this desert has taught me is that dead ain't gone. I think beautifully, Megan and I are both just devotees of Octavia Butler. Parable of the Sower really is that kind of pilgrimage inward, and its protagonist, in many ways like Megan, in many ways like myself and so many of us in this time, again, we're driven out of what we know into all manner of desert, right? psychic, actual. And in that novel in particular, the desert is where the protagonist homes her philosophy and she finds her tribe. It's not a place that you enter into willingly or you enter into the desert with the understanding, the sort of pact that you will be allowed to be absolved of all that you were. This desert, particularly the Las Vegas desert, is a place of hiding. It's an escape. It's a portal. It's a vortex. I'm doing some work with a, a curator right now named Essence, and she's also an Octavia Butler scholar. And right when I arrived in Vegas, she shared with me an index card from Butler's archive. And written on that card, it said, what specifically did the desert teach me? And I took a screenshot of that index card and I stuck it up on my wall in Las Vegas. And every day I looked at it. And so th to have my first conversation in Vegas be with Erica and for her to begin that process for me and, and to say, hey, I, I want to turn you away from the city and I want to I want to show you this sky and this heat and this sun. And I want you to be aware of what that has to offer you at this time in your life. That, that was like a, a lightning bolt. As Megan and I have both discovered, it is in this sort of unrealized place that you realize yourself most. The thing that you ran from or the thing that forced you out, it's waiting in the vortex. It becomes hyper real. It's not possible here to hide. Or maybe it is, but I wasn't able to find it. And, and what I found instead were really wonderful human beings in this community trying to make work that let you access those parts of yourself and let you be true to that experience. So my time in the desert wasn't about 
putting on lipstick and high heels and walking outward. What I did in Vegas was not stepping into some casino to try to drink it away. If we come back to Octavia Butler's question, what specifically did the desert teach me? It's the answer is it's in the work. It is in the way that we find meaning out of this experience. It occurs to me that the desert teaches you how to survive. If we can survive this desert, if we can survive just the dire emptiness that we sometimes find ourselves in here, and we can fill it with work and with love and with new imaginings of what life is, then, then that is the lesson. I think we romanticize the desert quite a bit. And yet when this pandemic fell upon us, I felt as though we had been consigned to the desert in a new way, in a more real way, less literary, less poetic. We're all in desert spaces at this point. Erica recently sent me a paragraph from Octavia Butler that she thought I needed. I'm learning to fly, to levitate myself. No one is teaching me. I'm just learning on my own, little by little, dream lesson by dream lesson. Not a very subtle image, but a persistent one. I've had many lessons. And I'm better at flying than I used to be. I trust my ability more now. But I'm still afraid. I can't quite control my directions yet. I really love the way Erica equates quarantine with the desert. I think that's a deeply insightful way of looking at it. Two very different experiences as part of the same continuum. In 1971, Hunter S. Thompson chronicled his drug-fueled haze during an off-road desert race, the Mint 400, in his classic novel Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. The Mint 400 is alive and well, but most Las Vegans don't realize it still exists. Fifty years after Thompson's escapades, writer Sonny Brown sets out to reconsider what's left of the elusive race for her own very personal reasons. And if you listen closely, you'll hear a very familiar voice reading excerpts from Thompson's Fear and Loathing. Really? Who? Can you uh, give me a hint? Um, butterfly in the sky. Butterfly in the sky. Hey, what? LeVar f***ing Burton? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is Mr. Reading Rainbow. Scott, do you know who he is? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. From a different context. <laughs> yes. You know, he's actually, there's a petition out there for him to be the next host of Jeopardy. And I don't know if you've signed it, but I have. Having watched the string of guest hosts, I am definitely in favor of LeVar Burton being the host of Jeopardy. <laughs> Me too. How do you know him? From Fear and Loathing in Space. No, from uh, uh, from Star Trek The Next Generation. What, what's his character's name? Geordi <laughs> LaForge. LaForge. Some might know him as Mr. Reading Rainbow. Others might know him as Mr. LaForge. But LeVar Burton himself gives Sunny a helping hand as she reframes the Mint 400 through the eyes of an immigrant black woman. 
Here's Sunny Brown. It was the mid-80s. I was a kindergartner in Jamaica and the only girl in a house filled with boys. Some of my fondest memories involved watching my older brothers work on cars, the way they worked closely and quietly, handing each other tools. Cars and rallies were a big deal in our house, and then the car rally was standard viewing. If my brothers weren't watching a race, they were talking about one, like the Mint 400 in Las Vegas which at five years old was as far away and as exotic as Dakar because I had never seen the desert before. Although my brothers were adults by the time I was born, we bonded by watching races together. On Sundays when we went to the beach, I would take the Hot Wheel toys my brothers gave me and pound them into the sand dunes, pretending they were the souped up cars and trucks making the trek from Paris to Senegal, just like the Dakar rally. It did not matter who won a race. My brothers would whoop and holler and our dogs would join in. Then they would head out to the front yard under the sprawling mango tree to resume working on cars. The earth underneath their feet was black from motor oil and axle grease. I would leave my dolls on the veranda, hike up my dress and stumble over to them. They tried to keep me away. I don't know if they thought this wasn't a proper place for a girl, but that never stopped me. Eventually, they would tell me to climb down from the mango tree and hand them a Phillips head screwdriver. Once in a while, they'd let me fire up the TIG torch on a fender they were welding. Those are some of my best memories. By the early aughts, the Dakar rally had moved to South America. I had left Jamaica for Texas and my brothers moved to Florida. I didn't watch races anymore because it wasn't the same without them. Besides, I had traded toolboxes and grease for makeup bags and heels. Eventually I fell in love with dirt bikes because of a boy. And just like that, I was watching racing again. Motocross is a different world than car rallies. First of all, you're standing in the dirt with other spectators separated from the race course by a rope. You constantly brush dirt from your shoulders and feel the grit on your skin. It's neat out in the dirt watching people do tricks on their motorbikes. But as a black woman, I also felt very aware that I looked different. There wasn't anything tangible to make my skin pimple with anxiety. But after the 2016 election, it felt like this was not the space for me anymore. I became hyper aware of my surroundings, scanning faces for signs of what exactly? I don't know. Something sinister? A wink? Do violent racists give a signal? Shortly before the 2016 election, now living in Las Vegas, I was searching for car rallies in the area. I realized around this time that my adult life has been about chasing the things from my childhood that made me happy like memories of watching the Dakar rally with my brothers. That's when I stumbled on the Mint 400 off-road race, as described in Hunter S. Thompson's book, Fair and Loathe in Las Vegas. And the Mint? That was something else. The race was definitely underway. 
I had witnessed the start. I was sure of that much. But what now? Rent a helicopter? Get back in that stinking Bronco? Wander out on that goddamn desert and watch these fools race past the checkpoints? One every 13 minutes? By 10, they were spread out all over the course. It was no longer a race. Now, it was an endurance contest. The only visible action was at the start-finish line, where every few minutes, some geek would come speeding out of the dust cloud and stagger off his bike, while his pit crew would gas it up and then launch it back onto the track with a fresh driver for another 50-mile lap. Another brutal hour of kidney-killing madness out there in that terrible, dust-blind limbo. Aside to write a blurb about the Mint 400 in 1971, Thompson instead wrote a rambling conspiracy saga. When his story was rejected, he turned it into a book that was then lauded as an American masterpiece, marking a high point of counterculture literature and gonzo journalism. This made Thompson seem so cool that Johnny Depp portrayed him twice. What kind of story is this? It's the Mint 400. It's the richest off-road race for motorcycles and dune buggies in the history of organized sport. I'd read the book before in a literature class, completely disgusted with the antics. Nothing prepares you for the drugs, violence, and outrageous behavior that Thompson indulges in while in Las Vegas. It dawns on you that this could only happen to a white man of privilege. The depraved decadence and overconsumption in Fair and Lothan is what lives in outsiders' imagination of the city. The idea of Las Vegas as an outlet for America's drunken abusiveness and excess didn't start with a book, but its legacy lingers. In some circles, the Mint 400 is a far, far better thing than the Super Bowl, the Kentucky Derby, and the Lower Oakland Roller Derby Finals all rolled into one. This race attracts a special breed. When I read Fair and Lothan, Thompson's version of the Mint 400 seemed as wrong to me as his depiction of Las Vegas, probably because he doesn't actually see the race. He arrives late, gets lost, crashes around the desert, and only catches glimpses of the action. To him, the people in and around the race are fools, geeks, lunatics. But that's not my experience. In March of 2015, I met a father and son team at the Mint Parade downtown on Fremont Street. The feeling that day is the closest I've been to a carnival in a while. People were in the streets, jumping into dune buggies, somewhere under the hoods of the specialized trucks oohing over the engine. The father and son weren't paying much attention to anything around them. They were cleaning the side mirrors of their black dune buggy, passing the polish or cloth to each other. They told me they spent years building and retooling their vehicle for the race. I could tell theirs was a bond forged years ago, tinkering on a car like my brothers did. I closed my eyes and inhaled the engine oil, letting it take me right back to Jamaica. Out at the race's starting point, in Gene, Nevada, about 30 miles south of Las Vegas, 
You can hear the full-throated growl of the trucks and snarling motorcycles. Each rev and vroom brings a sickly sweet smell of race fuel and exhaust. People mill about in denim short shorts, cargo pants, and boots. Thompson at least got the feeling of the mint right. It makes you giddy and excited. The spectators are eager to see half-ton bodies of metal fly through the air, leaving a trail of dust, which you literally eat. There's no escaping that. If you block out the casino carnival ride in the background, you can imagine the Mint 400 was happening on Mars. The drivers look like astronauts in their jumpsuits. There's a kinship among the crowd. No one notices me. Or when they do, I'm greeted with a smile. I'm just one of them, a racing fan. I feel I belong. Maybe I'm one of the special breeds. I don't see the father and son in Jean. After a few days, they sent me an email saying they never made it to the race. An axle busted during practice. They were already planning for the next year. This year is the 50th anniversary of Fair and Lothan's publication. Reading it, I see how Thompson made the mint just an odd extension of the Las Vegas he invented. The way he wildly exaggerated the craziest aspects of the race left out everything that mattered to me about it and about Las Vegas. It's an image privileged outsiders seem to always fall back on, no matter how loathsome the fantasy. Sure, the book is canonized as literature. But when I read it, I couldn't help wondering, who's cleaning up after this bozo? The answer, of course, is someone who lives here a hotel maid or minimum wage worker. People who make their homes in the places not accounted for in Thompson's supercharged prose. A writer friend of mine said Las Vegas is America's id, a place where people come to indulge in their primal urges. For 50 years, it's been almost impossible for Las Vegas to shake the template Thompson established. It's why the slogan, what happens here stays here, is so popular. But for some of us, what happens here stays here because we stay here, making our lives in the spaces between the city's profitable illusions. As for the Mint 400, I guess both Thompson and I saw what we needed to see in it, and in Las Vegas too. Thompson needed an out-of-control spectacle to reinforce his fish-out-of-water narrative. Well, good for him. All I really needed from the race was a way to reconnect to those happy memories of my brothers, to recover a bit of Jamaica here in my desert home. Are there certain texts or books about the desert we live in, like Fear and Loathing or others, that resonate with you? Well, for me, probably nothing will ever top Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I mean, I've got a Ralph Steadman face mask. Oh my God, you do. I do. Wait, will you read the quote on there? It says, I am not like the others. Oh my God. (laughs) It's one of several that I own. That's cool. So yeah, so nothing will probably top Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas for me. But I do like a, a Reno writer named William L. Fox. He writes about the desert in a variety of artistic, cultural, and scientific contexts. 
which is not nearly as dry and scholarly as I make it sound. <laughs> his writing is very smart and accessible. Well, the exact same can be said of poet Amy Natsuku Matatil and her debut work of nonfiction. A New York Times bestseller, World of Wonders, in praise of fireflies, whale sharks, and other astonishments, is a collection of 28 essays about the natural world and the way its inhabitants can teach and support us. Amy's book is one of two selected in the 2021 Nevada Reads, a.k.a. our statewide book club, which is sponsored by Nevada Humanities. Our next segment is a remix excerpt from Jordan Kistner's podcast, Thresholds. The full conversation can be heard on Thresholds. Jordan Kistner is a BMI Shearing Fellow and the author of the essay collection Thin Places, the very fine collection of essays, which I've read and enjoyed. It's so good. It's very good. It's so good. One of the pieces in there, Las Marthas, appeared in The Believer and was nominated for a National Magazine Award. She spoke with Amy about World of Wonders, her relationship with the Arizona desert, and finding belonging on the trails with her dad. I grew up in some rural areas, but I also had access to big university libraries. So it's not for a lack of looking. I just simply didn't see that. And I'm a child of the 70s and 80s, so it's definitely better now. But I always wondered, like, where are the Asian Americans who love the outdoors? I cannot be the only one. And my name is Amy Nazik Matatil, and I'm the author of five books, and I am a professor of English at the University of Mississippi. My most recent collection is a collection of nature essays called World of Wonder, in praise of fireflies, whale sharks, and other astonishments. And it's a collection that is illustrated featuring about 30 of my favorite plants and animals that help me feel like a student of this planet again. I'm Jordan Kistner, and I'm the host of Thresholds. I've said before that at heart, I'm kind of a a nerd. (laughs) Not kind of, I am. I am a lot of a nerd. And the books that I grew up reading were science books and adventure books and stories of the outdoors and their observations, nature guides, you know, that kind of thing. But when I got to the back of these books, I never saw anybody that even remotely looked at me. I was lucky to find, you know, authors like Rachel Carson or Annie Dillard women, but certainly I never saw any people of color. I don't know if I necessarily had the answers, but I had, um, in the writing of this book, just a lot of questions about that as well. Tell me about some of those questions. The very first gut instinct one was just, just that question of whose story gets to be told about the outdoors and whose doesn't, and all the reasons for that. How did your dad become so knowledgeable about the landscape around Phoenix. Was it something that he took up and studied when you all moved there? Was it something that he had already, you know, that he brought with him? I mean, he's um, a biologist, you know, he has a, you know, degrees in biology and botany and he read so much. That was really kind of his entertainment. I think I just never questioned it, you know, as a little girl, like to me, that was just infinite wisdom of him. It's not like he's had all this free time in the world. He worked in a NICU unit. So um, very, very teeny, preemie, premature babies, helping them breathe. He could be called in at a moment's notice. 
birthday parties or whatever, he would be called in. He did not have long, luxurious summer breaks. There's no off time when it's babies struggling to breathe. Um, as a kid, I kind of always resented it. Like, gosh, who are these babies? Don't they know it's my birthday? Which sounds ridiculous, of course, but he was my, he's my dad. He's an immigrant and, you know, and trying to deal with these very vibrant daughters, you know, dealing with these two, two elementary school girls that he didn't really know. One wanted to be Madonna, the other one, I think, wanted to be a backup dancer in Wham. I think his piece was reading about the environment and then taking his vivacious daughters out, out on these hikes, out on these constellation hunting trips so that we knew the names for things. We knew the stars at such an early age. And I'll be honest, I wasn't always thrilled about it. You know, many times I was like, Dad, I want to watch MTV or whatever. But that is, oh, it's just one of the, the biggest gifts of my life that didn't cost any money. It was just simply going on these walks and having him. Him and my mom were just always... They had the best stories. They still have the best stories. It was just always an adventure. There was no sense of, of him being bored. And therefore, I think one of his biggest legacies is letting his daughters not be bored. My parents drilled it into us about like only boring people get bored. We were sent outside and we were absolutely expected to find our own fun using sticks and stones and Whatever we can find outside. Oh, here's an interesting caterpillar. Here's a, a garter snake or whatever. You know, that was our entertainment. And um, I'm so grateful for that, actually. You write so beautifully in World of Wonders about the outdoors, whether it's a plant or a bird or, you know, a landscape as as a site of peace and of knowledge and of discovery and of authority. And it, so it was just striking to me that you used the word peace, like it was a peaceful place. It was his peace being outside. And it reminded me of a, the passage in your book where you describe wishing that your front yard when you were living in Phoenix had a giant, I think it was a saguaro cactus, like a neighbor's did. I guess I'm just wondering like what parts of that landscape to you felt like they really caught in your heart or in your mind? Gosh, that's such a beautiful question too. Um, it's, it's hard for me to pin down one thing from the kind of the Ari suburban Arizona landscape because I also feel a kinship with um, a landscape in Kansas. I absolutely do have tangible, tangible memories of um, talking to cardinals, for example, in the suburbs of Chicago and, and Western New York. This wasn't in the book, but this is right around the time where it's maple syrup season, you know, that kind of thing. But I would say, something that still holds true today um, anytime I visit Arizona is just that pure, pure sunshine. The culture was just so different then. I'm talking about like summer and winter breaks. It was eat your breakfast, go outside, swim at somebody's house if not if you didn't have a pool of your own. And you know, these are these are not like super well off kids. This was absolutely middle to upper middle class kids, but just so many people had pools in the suburbs. Come inside for lunch. We would wait because even the hardiest of us couldn't be out at the blazing 1, 1 p.m., 2 p.m. time. We just spent 
these days just outside and finding new bugs or, oh, look at the seeds of this plant or check out this spider or, you know, just riding our bikes everywhere and, and that hot, hot sunshine and then seeing kind of the glint of, of cacti, that kind of dull green glint of, um, in the hot, hot sun of the cacti. That, that to me is, is like peak elementary school. <laughs> Because it was also a danger, right? We would have to, you know, if we're running around, oh, don't don't fall if you're on your bikes and, and chasing each other around, don't crash into the cactus. So it was something both exquisite beauty to me, but also such dangers. So I think just cacti in general, there's too many to list, but saguaro, acatillo, just even the cute stumpy barrel bush cactus. Do you remember with one of the sort of early formative experiences of being in the outdoors that made you feel like, oh, this is this is for me. This is where this is the place where I want to be or this is something I'm deeply attracted to. I don't know if there was one specific moment because I have so many moments and many of them are are chronicled um, in the book where I just had this sense of peace or this joy. For those people who don't know, Phoenix is in the center. It's in a valley. Um, the Valley of the Sun, they call it, you know. You know, when my father was off, we would go hiking up, oh, Camelback Mountain, South Mountain. That's where I also saw him so confident. And um, nobody talked down to him. Nobody made fun of his um, Indian accent, his Malayalam accent. In fact, people were asking questions of him. Oh, you know, because they would, I think they would see him talking to his two young girls like, oh, this is an Akatia tree. There's a Chukwala lizard. You know, he knew the names of minerals and rocks and cacti. And if he didn't know the name of something, you know, this is before cell phones, he would just really try to get a good look at it. We, we didn't even have sketchbooks e- either, you know, just try to get a good look at it. Then we'd go to the library and try to look up that plant or that cactus or that mineral. So he was kind of an expert in this land that is not his homeland. You know, contrasting that with observing, you know, these kind of jerk cashiers, um, you know, who would who would talk so down to him, like, I cannot understand you speak English, you know, when he was speaking actual English. It was very palpable. I didn't have the vocabulary for it. I'm embarrassed to say that I, I was maybe even a little bit ashamed of my of my dad. Not ashamed of my dad, but just embarrassed of the situation because I could see him, this mighty, amazingly smart man. Many girls think their dad is the smartest man alive, you know. Um, and then to see him so belittled and kind of talked down to him that way. The outdoors was a place for both my mom and my dad to just kind of be on their own and confident in their own. And nobody questioned them. Nobody asked, what are you or what are you doing here? They just felt so comfortable there. And therefore, I think that comfort was transferred to my sister and I. I say all of this knowing full well that not everybody has that privilege. Not everybody. I mean, I, I have friends who never felt comfortable outside uh, for various reasons. So I can only speak to my own experiences. For me, a child of an Indian man and a Filipino woman, and we didn't have extended family here, you know, in the States. So the, it was the four of us. And the outdoors was a place where nobody made us feel unwelcome. 
To hear the full conversation with Amy Natsuka Matati, listen to Thresholds with Jordan Kisner wherever you get your podcasts. We truly hope you enjoyed this episode of Black Mountain Radio. Black Mountain Radio is an audio project of the Beverly Rogers Carol C. Harder Black Mountain Institute. Sada Ortiz is the host and curator. And today's fantastic guest host is Scott Dickensheets. Our senior producer is Nicole Kelly. Vera Blossom and Layla Muhammad are our associate producers. Scott Dickensheets is our editor. Anthony Ferris is our production assistant. Phil Corbett is our sound mixer. Art by Jesse Jung. Our theme song is by Jeremy Klawicki and graphic design by Lily Allen. Special thanks to Sonny Brown, LeVar f***ing Burton, (laughs) (laughs) Jordan Kistner, Amy Nezakumitatil, Megan Steelstra, and Erica Vital-Lazar. Thanks to the rest of the team at the Black Mountain Institute. Kellen Braddock, Daniel Gambiner, Haley Patel, Kristen Radke, Summer Tamad, Michael Ursell, and Haya Wang. Black Mountain Radio is supported by the Rogers Foundation and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. A big thanks to our sponsors at Sappos, who helped make this episode possible, and who contribute to Las Vegas' creative communities with playful, people-first approaches to arts and culture. A heartfelt thanks to Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities for supporting Black Mountain Radio. And our deep gratitude goes to the Hank Greenspan College of Urban Affairs, the home of KUNV. The biggest shout out to our engineer, Kevin Kral. Black Mountain Radio is broadcast from Southern Paiute land. So we can come back on the air soon. Please consider supporting this project and all we do as a friend of the Black Mountain Institute. We welcome volunteers and advice and urge anyone who is able to go to blackmountainradio.org and make a donation of $10 a month. In addition to a heavy fallout of cosmic gratitude, you'll get a subscription to The Believer, a thank you in its pages, and other tokens of our appreciation. Learn more at blackmountainradio.org. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Sada. Thank you so much, Scott. It wasn't so bad, was it? No. I mean, I can't speak for the listeners. <laughs> but... Uh.